The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the hosts and creators of this program. This is the Pet Buzz. This is the Pet Buzz. Freshly collected with news, celebrity pet gossip, and the latest pet trends. The Pet Buzz gives you the latest 411 on everything pet related. Everything pet related. Hosted by pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. And here's the Dynamic, Dynamic pet, pet Duo. Hello, hello, I'm petronologist Charlotte Reed, and you are listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio. This is our home health special pet programming. Let's get the show going with our weekly countdown. In segment number four, veterinarian Dr. Mark Seitz, assistant clinical professor at the College of Veterinary Medicine at Mississippi State University, joins us to talk about being better prepared for emergencies because by understanding first aid basics... You can save your dog's life. Three, in this portion of the show, Dr. Fleck and I are talking with ASPCA veterinarian toxicologist Dr. Tina Wismer about common household pet hazards that can endanger your pets and flatten your wallet. Two, are America's pets fat? Our expert veterinarian and author, Dr. Ernie Ward, is back to talk about slimming down our supersized pets in segment number two, one veterinarian, Ann Hollenhouse, is here from the Animal Medical Center, one of the largest teaching hospitals in the world, to talk about the importance of vaccines now. Vaccines are an important part of your dog or cat's health care routine. By vaccinating your pet, you can help protect your family friend from various diseases. Dr. Ann, welcome to the Pet Buzz. Oh, Charlotte, it's so good to be here. I wish you still lived in New York because then I could actually see you as opposed to just getting to talk to you on the phone. I know. I like Sarasota way too much. Okay, I heard it's beautiful there. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous here. But you know what? Can you review the core adult dog and cat vaccines for our listening audience? When they go to the vet, what do they need to get? So the core vaccines are those vaccines that a group of Infectious disease specialist has deemed required for each dog or cat. That's kind of across the board. There might be rare exceptions to that. For dogs, it would be vaccination against a distemper virus, adenovirus 2, which doesn't really mean that much to most people, but is the virus that causes infectious hepatitis in dogs, and parvovirus. Some vaccines also contain... um, antigens against parinfluenza, but technically that parinfluenza is really not considered to be a core vaccine in the dog. So it's three things, distemper, infectious hepatitis, and parvo. In cats, it is feline viral rhinotracheitis, an upper respiratory virus, Khaleesi virus, another upper respiratory virus, and panleukopenia, which is the parvovirus of cats. And that those are abbreviated to FVRCP. So if a veterinarian says your cat's due for FVRCP, they're getting the core vaccines. Then the core vaccine that's common to both dogs and cats is rabies. And in most cases, rabies is required by law, correct? It, that is a, a municipality to municipality rule. So some states require it, some municipalities don't. But in general, it is that is the the one vaccine that would be mandated by law that your pet should have. Here in New York City, both dogs and cats need to be vaccinated for rabies. 
Okay, gotcha. So now do all, like you said, rabies, depending on where you live. But what about other vaccines? So, for example, leptospirosis. So canine influenza. We have. Yeah. If the vaccines we just talked about are core vaccines, then the opposite of a core vaccine is cleverly named non-core vaccine. And those are vaccines that might be considered lifestyle vaccines. And so the, the whether or not your pet needs these vaccines depends on what the pet's lifestyle is. So, for example, a show dog might need vaccines like canine influenza and Bordetella because these diseases are spread where dogs congregate in large groups of dogs. Or if your dog went to doggy daycare or a boarding kennel. If you have a hunting dog, a dog that goes out in the in the woods and in the water and um, hunts, catches, you know, gets birds, retrieves birds, points at things, then that dog will probably need the leptospirosis vaccine and the Lyme disease vaccine because those dogs are exposed to leptospirosis in the water. It gets there from wild animals and they'll be exposed to ticks, which everyone knows carries the Lyme disease. So non-core vaccines depend on what your life, your pet's lifestyle is. Okay. You know, it's really interesting. And I'm just curious about your opinion about this. You know, in the last few years, we've with especially when it comes to children, people have talked about, you know, there's risk associated with vaccines. Is this necessarily true of pets too? There are some very rare reports of vaccinations being associated with anemia and maybe some other immune diseases. But those are are infrequent and uh, hard to prove, actually. Lots and lots of things to think about. Some great advice from Dr. Ann. Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking about the importance of pet vaccinations with veterinarian Dr. Ann Hohenhaus of the New York City's Animal Medical Center. So, you know, it's really interesting. You know, what do I do if I think my pet is having an adverse reaction to a vaccine? What, what, what would the symptoms be and what do you think? And tell us what we should do. So I, there's, there's two syndromes of vaccination reaction. And I'll, I'll talk about the easily managed one first and then the more complicated one. So sometimes a dog after or cat after a vaccination will feel achy and tired and not eat for 24 hours. And if you think about when you get your flu vaccine once a year, you realize that sometimes your arm is kind of achy and maybe you don't feel so good that day. So sometimes you don't know that this reaction is going to happen. And so if it persists more than 24 hours, that's when you would call your veterinarian and ask them what should happen. If you know your dog has had a vaccination reaction previously, then I will do things to try and mitigate that since it's likely going to recur a second time. And I will often uh, give an antihistamine at the time of the vaccination, or I might also give a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory to help decrease the muscle aches and the mild fever that sometimes comes with vaccination. So, what, what you as a pet owner should do is call me, the veterinarian. Now, sometimes pets will have a severe reaction to vaccinations. And the good news is that that severe reaction usually happens pretty quickly, and it often happens before you even get out of the veterinarian's office. So the dog will start to get itchy, their face might get swollen, they might vomit, have diarrhea, sometimes they collapse. 
And, of course, that's a bona fide emergency, in which case your veterinarian will probably give antihistamines and steroids and, in some cases, fluids and keep the dog for a little bit till the reaction passes. The good news is that I've been a veterinarian a long time, and these vaccine reactions are pretty rare, but the good news is they tend to happen in a very safe place, which is your veterinarian's office. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And I'm glad we actually brought that up because I know with Dr. Flex practice that sometimes people who haven't had their dogs vaccinated in a very long time, I'm talking two Mm -hmm. or three years, sometimes their pets do have an adverse reaction to a vaccine. Yes. And then uh, the other thing that causes an adverse reaction more commonly than not is when you give a lot of vaccines at one time. So I have a general rule of thumb, and I never give more than two vaccines at one time to a patient. Sometimes that means that the client has to come back a couple weeks later to finish up that year's vaccinations, but I just can't take the risk that I'm going to make a patient sick, especially little dogs. Little dogs are more prone to vaccination reactions than big ones. Well, you know, that is something to think about. I'm glad that you brought us up. Well, you know, Dr. Ann, Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to be here on the Pet Buzz, Charlotte. Okay, well, everyone, that was Dr. Ann Hollenhouse from New York City's Animal Medical Center talking about the importance of vaccinations. Learn more about vaccinations at the American Animal Hospital Association and the American Association of Feline Practitioners. Next up, we're going to talk about supersized pets and how to slim them down. Now, this is a segment you don't want to miss. More pet health and wellness next. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We would love to communicate with you via social media. Use The Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. Know what? What? Since I got adopted, I've learned a lot about these humans. Uh, I know. I mean, check out these two. It's Flirt City over here. Yeah, I noticed that. It looks like my human is definitely into your human. Oh, look! I think she's getting his number. Nice. Your human's got some sweet moves. Takes after his dog. (laughs) Oh, look, they're doing that thing where they put their arms around each other. She kicked up a leg. It's like in the movies. That's awesome. Looks like we're going to be hanging out a little bit more. Does your pet have dry, flaky, and itchy skin? Do you find yourself visiting the veterinarian repeatedly because Fido or Fluffy has skin allergies or ear infections? I love animals and want my pets to be healthy. So I asked our vet who recommended EpiPet Ear Cleaner. It's super simple, and it even smells good. Every week I use it on both my dog and my cat to gently remove wax and debris. I even told my friend Aiden to try EpiPet on his dog Sophie, who always had red ears. But not anymore. Now we both have happy and healthy pets. Thanks, EpiPet. Developed by a veterinarian, 
EpiPed is a revolutionary, high-performance skin and ear care product line made with the finest natural ingredients. EpiPed, for you and your pet, means better pet health. For more information, visit epi-pet.com. This show is hosted by the dynamic pet duo. I'm petronologist Charlotte Reed. You know, American pets are just like their owners, overweight. Here to talk about how to slim down a supersized pet is veterinarian Dr. Ernie Ward. He is the weight management and diet guru of the pet world. He is also the author of Chow Hounds and the founder of the Association for Pet Obesity and Prevention. Well, hiya, how you doing? So glad you're back. I am so glad to be back. I got to tell you, your audience is the best on the planet. And I'll tell you uh, to the listeners all around the world that, that follow you, you are making such a positive difference in this world. It is always an honor and a thrill to, to be with you. So, again, thank you so much for all you do. And thank you. So let's get started. So I have to ask you, Dr. Ward, are American dogs and cats as fat as we think they are? Are they supersized pets? You know, Charlotte, sadly they are. You know, I started the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention back in 2005 basically to track the prevalence of obesity in dogs and cats in the United States. And, of course, we've extended that into learning how people feed, where they buy their food, what are their attitudes about nutrition. But the bottom line is every year when we track this, we find that it continues to creep upwards. And right now, about 56% of all U.S. dogs are classified as overweight or obese by their veterinarian and about 60% of all cats. So we're talking 106 million pets are too heavy. So what are we doing wrong? Are we giving them too many snacks? Are we not tackling those issues? Right. Well, and it's a complex issue. And, and first of all, I want to make sure that our listeners understand there's a clinical distinction between obesity, which is a disease, a clinical pathology, and a disruption of a normal body process and just being a couple of pounds overweight. You know, now that you're talking about this whole bigger picture. It's more complicated. And so the first thing, if your dog or cat needs to lose weight, if they have obesity, we really want to look for a medical or disease cause or contribution because that's that really is frustrating because you put your dog or cat on a therapeutic weight loss diet. Six months later, they haven't lost weight. They've actually gained a pound. That's really frustrating when the actual root cause was a disease. And when we look at, you know, we survey uh, pet owners every year. And if you haven't taken the survey, it's open until the end of December each year. So we we do this in October and December. But last year, we found that 68% of pet owners reported that they had tried to help their pet lose weight. And obviously, the vast majority of them were trying to do it by smaller portions, reducing the number of calories, as you mentioned, measuring it. And I'll tell you a tip for the listeners today. I love using measuring cups, but if you really want to get precise with your feeding, you have to weigh the food because it gets tricky. We actually, you know, pet food is one of those odd things that you buy, and it's actually sold by weight. We do the calculations by weight, but then you feed it by volume. So you take a cup, and we know that we can introduce a lot of imprecision, a lot of errors. In fact, Charlotte, we did a study way back in 2006, and we took the top 10 cat foods on the market at the time, so dry kibble cat foods. And we said, what would happen 
if you fed just a little bit extra each meal, you know, how much weight would a cat gain? And we found that if you feed a cat an extra 10 little tiny kibbles of dry cat food a day, 10 little pieces a day, that equals one pound of weight gain in a year. So you can see why, as you mentioned, measuring the food is so important. That's unbelievable. I mean, 10 little pieces of kibble, and that's one pound a year? That's so crazy. But, you know, like you said, there's so many other things. I mean, how the pet food was initially grown in its raw form, other environmental factors, and then the massive amounts of new research that's coming out with DNA. Don't forget the, the gut microbiome. We're doing some exciting research at Wild Earth to actually look at the different bacteria that are present in dogs with obesity because just like in humans, we're seeing, wow, there's different gut bacteria present in dogs and in people that have obesity and how can we manipulate that microflora and actually improve health. So it's really exciting time. But again, at the end of the day, we, the first step, as you mentioned at the outset, is awareness. You've really got to talk to your veterinarian, and I I would say demand. Every time you take your dog or cat into the vet, demand that they do a body condition score, a BCS. And that's still a subjective analysis of of body condition, but it gives you a good marker to to try to spot that trend before it gets too late. Scarlett, it's not just the United States. I have the, the good fortune to travel all around the world lecturing and teaching veterinarians about obesity and nutrition. And whether I am in Asia, whether I'm in South America, I was just in Brazil, I was just in Russia the month before that, you know, I was in Spain. Wherever I go, Charlotte, I continue to see more and more pets suffering from obesity. So this is a global phenomenon. We know it's being driven by feeding too many calories and not getting adequate exercise. We can also, listeners, another little tip, we know now that the role of early spay and neuter, I mean, I've been saying this for years, but now we're getting more and more research to support and validate this presumption, but we know that early spay and neutering can also predispose a dog or cat for obesity because, again, we're removing those sex hormones when they're actually still developing muscle, muscles and, and bones. And so, you know, again, Charlotte, it's such a complex issue we've really got to pay more attention to. Well, you know, it's really interesting, and then I'm going to wrap this up with you. But, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that where dog ownership starts to rise, like in countries like you mentioned, Brazil and Russia, then you see the rise in obesity. Because if you, 20 or 30 years ago, if you were looking at the few people who had dogs, in Brazil and Russia, mostly they were wealthy. And you didn't see so many middle class. Now there's such a large middle class in those countries. And and the economics, the economic level is rising so that you see more dogs. And I do when I go online and I look at dogs or different breeds of dog or even, you know, mixed breed dogs. Um, you see how the dogs are. People love them. They love them to death. Wouldn't you say that's the case? I would say that's exactly the case, and you're right. In these emerging economies like Brazil, like in Russia or in Asia, that's exactly what we see. It's completely coincidental with the middle-class growth, and what happens, I think, is, A, we have this innate, deep desire to connect with animals. And so dogs and cats, of course, are our closest companions, and so we bring them into our homes uh, instead of living in the yard or working uh, outside in the farm. And so 
so now they come into our bedroom, and the next thing, of course, we do is share our meals with them. And as we share those meals, we're adding more calories, and that's really where the majority of the problem originates. It's as we bring them into our lives in a more intimate setting, we share love, we share meals, we add on the pounds. And that leads to problems. And again, listeners, just, just be aware, this isn't just something that, you know, a dog doesn't look good in a bikini. This is actually causing <laughs> diabetes. This is causing high blood pressure. This is causing osteoarthritis. This is causing many forms of cancer. I mean, the list goes on and on. You know, my mission on this planet, just like yours, is to try to improve the quality of life for the dogs and cats we love. And this is one of those areas that any pet owner can absolutely dramatically improve the quality of life for their pet and the longevity and prevent disease and save money just by paying attention to what they're feeding. Well, on that note, Ernie, I'm going to let you go, but it always makes me smile when you when you join us. Well, you make me smile. Thank you so much. That was veterinarian Dr. Ernie Ward, a practitioner from Calabash, North Carolina, and founder of the Association of Pet Obesity Prevention. You can learn more about pet obesity at petobesityprevention.org. We're going to be right back with veterinarian Dr. Tina Wismer. She's going to talk about common household hazards that can endanger your pets. We'll be back in a buzzworthy moment. When your doctor recommended omega fatty acids as a daily supplement, he told you that they promoted better heart, brain, skin, joint, and immune system health. Well, doesn't it make sense for your pet to have the same health benefits? EpiPet Whole Fish Treat, an all-natural smoked fish supplement, is 100% bioavailable, bringing your pets the nutrients they need to keep them healthy and happy. To order better pet health for your dog or cat, visit www.epi-pet.com. Hi, I'm Brad Garrett. The investigation of the Humane Society of the United States exposed the link between pet stores and puppy mills. Large puppy mill operations were busted in Maine, Oklahoma, Texas, and Virginia. Bottom line, puppy mills are cruel and their puppies are often sick. So do yourself a favor and go to your local shelter for your next dog. You'll get an inoculated, already fixed dog for almost nothing. So you'll not only save some money, but you'll also save a life. Welcome back. You're listening to The Pet Buzz, a pet show that focuses on breaking news, pet culture, and animal health and wellness. I'm petronologist Charlotte Reed. And in this segment of the show, I'm going to be talking about common household pet hazards that can endanger your pets and flatten your wallet. So joining us today is veterinarian Dr. Tina Wismer. Dr. Wismer is a veterinary toxicologist. She is also the medical director of the ASPCA's Animal Poison Control Center. Dr. Tina, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to join us on the Pet Buzz. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you know, since the ASPCA has thousands of calls dealing with common household hazards, let's go through the home and have you identify some of the pet dangers that come about in each room of the house. So let's start with the kitchen. What are some of the edible hazards for for pets that pets get into in the kitchen? Well, certainly if we're talking about edible toxins, Chocolate, of course, has to lead uh, the list there, especially with dogs. But we can't forget about things like onions and garlic or xylitol, right, that um, sugar alcohol that's a problem for dogs. It drops their blood sugar and can cause liver failure. And, of course, in the kitchen, 
We also uh, keep fun things like alcohol for us, but definitely <laughs> keep your pets away from that. Yeah, we better make sure we have some locked garbage cans, correct? Oh, yes, right? I mean, dogs especially will get into the garbage and they can get into anything from, you know, moldy food that we've thrown away that can actually cause tremors and seizures to other things that could cause potential foreign bodies where you would need surgery. So things like, you know, string off the roast um, or aluminum foil. You know, it's actually interesting because somebody sent me a garbage can. You know, one of those tech garbage cans that opens its voice control. The problem is that if I wave my hand over it, it will open too. And sometimes when I'm just talking, it will open. So my golden retriever, Hannah, who's a big garbage hound, loves to stick her head inside that garbage can. So I don't necessarily recommend that um, for anybody who has a pet. You guys can picture Hannah, this quite large, yellow, beautiful yellow golden retriever. And all you see is a wagging tail with a head and stuck in this metallic garbage can. So I like it's actually it's in my studio now. And occasionally when I'm talking to somebody on the phone, it opens up. Well, well, okay. so my next question is, um, should pet owners be worried about where we put insecticides and rodenticides when we have pets? Yes, Um, especially with rodenticides, right? Most of these are grain based. So dogs and even some cats will ingest them. So you or I may think that, oh, they can't get behind the oven or the refrigerator to get to this, but our pets are pretty darn resourceful. Or the rats or mice can actually move the baits and our pets can actually get a hold of them. That's actually a good point. Maybe that's why they have stickies on the bottom that a lot of us never use. So it's a good idea to stick them down if you have those little combats or any of those other uh, insecticides uh, that stick. Okay, I find that a lot of people love to accent their home with plants. So it's my understanding that some flowers, some plants and herbs can be dangerous to pets. So where can we find a pet-friendly plant list? We actually have one on our website at ASPCA.org. Um, and we actually list both toxic and non-toxic plants, so you can pick the safest ones for your pets. But remember, even if it's a non-toxic plant, if your pet eats it, they could vomit the plant material back up. And even if you're buying a plant for a friend, check the list if you know they have pets. Okay. So let's talk about the laundry room. Now, many of us know dogs and cats have been caught or love to go in the dryer, especially some of the smaller ones. But what else do we have to worry about in the laundry room? So laundry detergent or fabric softener, um, these sometimes the pets will spill the containers or they'll bite into those little pods and they can actually be exposed to the soap. Certainly, if you ingest soap, it can cause vomiting. Those bubbles can get inhaled into your lungs um, and cause severe problems um, with aspiration pneumonia. So definitely keep things in the laundry room away from your pets. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to, if you're, I mean, you know, let's face it. A lot of people try, a lot of kids tried the Tide Challenge. It wasn't good for them. It wasn't good for you and your wallet because you had to take your your kids to the hospital. So it's definitely not going to be good for your pet. So keep that laundry detergent in the closet or on um, some metal shelving in your laundry room. Okay. Let's talk about the bathroom. Ah, so the bathroom. Um, 
I know we're not supposed to, um, but this is where I keep most of my medications. So things like, you know, ibuprofen or acetaminophen or, you know, potentially prescription medications. And these can actually be very dangerous to our pets. Um, especially things like acetaminophen. Dogs and cats don't metabolize it like we do, and they can end up with liver problems or it can change their blood so it can't carry oxygen. Great point. I guess you shouldn't put your medication in the bathroom because of the changes in temperature. Is that right? Yes, that's what the experts recommend. Oh, listen to me. I know a few things here. Okay. Nobody ever asked about this, but I'm going to. Let's talk closets. Sure. So closets, not only do we sometimes put insecticides or, you know, mouse and rat bait in there, but we may also use things like mothballs. And with mothballs, there are two different types. One, if ingested, can cause neurologic signs in our dogs and cats. They become wobbly like they're drunk. They may have tremors. The other one can actually affect their blood and they can actually have um, become anemic, right? Low amounts of red blood cells. Wow. And a lot of times we also put those odor absorbers um, in our closets as well. They kind of, kind of suck up the air or kind of clean the air, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. So probably the most dangerous in that group are actually the ones that are like the little dehumidifiers, mm-hmm. right? The one that keeps the humidity down. Those pellets are calcium chloride, and they're actually very corrosive. So if your dog or cat licks that or licks the water that forms on those beads, we can actually end up with severe burns in the mouth. Yeah, I remember once I had one in my storage locker and the internal gel turned to liquid. And I remember when I picked it up, imagine if a dog or cat got a hold of that. I mean, it was just really, I mean, I didn't expect it to turn to liquid. It was all over my hands. I had to stop what I was doing and immediately because I could kind of feel a burning or tingling sensation. So take this information in, take notes, and then, you know, if you have time today, do a little assessment uh, of your of your home and see if any of you have any of this stuff. It can be dangerous for your dog and cat or it's in, or if it's in your sight view, then it's in the sight view of your dog and cat. Okay, let's talk bedrooms. There's lots of, sure. lots of little dangerous <laughs> gems in our bedrooms. Right? And probably one of the most dangerous things with bedrooms is that many of us We'll set out our medication, right? Either before we go to bed or, you know, so we can take it in the morning. We leave it on the nightstand. And especially if you've got, you know, a bigger dog, that's right at eye level. Or, you know, cats, they love to bat pills around and potentially taste them. So good practice to avoid if you have pets. Okay, great. So no medication on the side tables and also sometimes no food or drink, especially that alcoholic drink you mentioned, correct? That's right. Yes. Okay. So I remember you telling me a while back that the remote control is the most commonly chewed item in the household. Yes, it is. So other than the plastic, what makes it so dangerous? Not that that's not enough. Right. So what do most of us do when we watch TV? We eat, right? So you're eating your popcorn or your chips, and then you're touching the remote control. So probably because it smells, you know, like food, 
pets chew into it. And what we're really concerned about are the batteries that are inside it. Ah. Those contain very corrosive compounds. So many dangers in the home. I'm so glad you're here talking about this on the special pet health and wellness issue of the Pet Buzz. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Wismer. Thank you for inviting me. That was veterinarian Dr. Tina Wismer from the ASPCA Poison Control Center talking about common household dangers in every room of the house. Learn more about dangers in your home at ASPCA.org. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We would love to communicate with you via social media. Use the Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. Warmer temperatures mean more time outside. You have sunscreen for yourself, but what about Fido? According to the American Animal Hospital Association and the American College of Veterinary Dermatology, pets need sunscreen too. Use EpiPet Sun Protector, the only FDA-approved pet sunscreen on short-haired, light-colored, hairless, golden retrievers, and other dogs susceptible to skin cancer. Contained in a sports bottle, EpiPet allows you to turn the bottle upside down, making it easier to spray your dog all over to protect your dog from the sun all day and every day. Visit epi-pet.com. Welcome back. To remind you, this is a special edition of the Pet Buzz. It's a pet home and health programming, and I feel that everyone who shares a home with a pet should have a basic knowledge of pet first aid. Knowing what to do in an emergency may mean the difference between life and death for your dog. Veterinarian Dr. Mark Seitz is with us talking about learning how to prevent emergencies, treating minor injuries with first aid, and when to seek immediate veterinary assistance and care. Welcome back to the Pet Buzz, Dr. Seitz. Hey, Miss Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me back. Don't you love these Southern guys? You just got to love them. They're so charming. Okay, so can you provide us, before we get, let's get started by having you provide us with a definition of first aid and telling us why preparing for pet emergencies beforehand is so important. Absolutely. First aid can basically be thought of as the care given to a sick or injured pet before full medical care is available. So many times an emergency happens um, at a house or even out of the house, maybe at a park where pets like to play, and people can be far away from proper veterinary care. And what's really neat about first aid, studies have actually shown that when done properly, it can actually improve the chance of a good outcome when you get to the veterinary office. But that's why preparation is so important. So many people buy first aid kits and books and they never use them, right? Exactly. And that's why preparation is important for two big reasons. One, in an emergency, we as humans tend to not think well. We tend to get into that fight or flight mode because we're really stressed out. And so being prepared can help you prepare mentally and also provide basic tools to help you respond to an emergency. So why should or what should pet owners remember about administering first aid? So I love the unwritten creed in veterinary medicine that says, above all else, do no harm. And how that applies to pet first aid is even though we may be well-intentioned, sometimes we need to think about our actions 
and make certain that we aren't going to make a situation worse by unknowingly hurting a pet or even hurting ourselves. Sometimes in an emergency situation, the scene is dangerous not only to the pet still, but to humans. A good example would be a house fire or a car accident. And we just want to make certain that all parties involved are going to be safe and that we're going to ensure a good outcome for both the pets and the humans. I'm actually glad that you gave us those two examples because, you know, I can actually visualize being on the road and maybe hitting a dog or somebody hitting a dog or a house fire and just the outcome of, you know, getting your dogs and cats out of the house. Because many of us have had candles on tables and a cat has gotten a little bit of a burnt tail. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it happens a lot. Okay, so, you know, one of the things, um, I'm, I tend to do things, I, I, I'm kind of like a little overdone. I like kind of sometimes do too much. So should everybody have a first aid kit? I mean, I, I like I said, I have one in my house, I have one in my car, I have one in my studio, I keep one in my purse. I mean, I'm, I'm a little, you know, too much, but that's me. You know, I am like you, um, and I do feel a first aid kit is kind of like insurance. You should have it, and you hope you never have to use it. And if you don't have it, it's one of those that increases your odds that you're probably going to need it. But going back to what we talked about with preparation, a first aid kit is going to increase the chances that we can actually help our pets in case of an emergency because we don't want to be panicked running around trying to get stuff together. And what's neat, there's a lot of already made ones commercially available but it's really, really simple um, to look up some lists online and put together a basic uh, kit that can be tailored to a pet owner's individual needs. Um, for example, somebody who has a working dog is going to need a lot more extensive of a kit than somebody, say, who has a small pet, lives in the city, and doesn't go outside much. Um, and there are some essential items that I recommend everybody have, and there are a lot of things we would put in a human kit. For example, um, you want to have some rubber gloves some hand sanitizer, some gauze or clean towels. Uh, I recommend a leash and a blanket. Uh, some tape and scissors can be helpful. And then specific things that can actually help um, if a pet is exposed to a toxin would be some liquid dish soap, some hydrogen peroxide, and some saline eye solution as well. That's great because a lot of people don't recognize that. It's very easy, especially in flooding and natural disaster situations. You have to decontaminate your dog. So thank you so much for that information. You know, it's really interesting. I'm always surprised um, by pet owners' reactions that they're always amazed how their pets behave. So I think, you know, can you talk to us about why it's so important to learn how to handle an injured an injured animal? Absolutely. Um, In a time of stress or when a pet is injured, I think it's really easy to forget that they resort back to fight or fight behaviors um, that are kind of programmed in their brain, very similar to you and I. And we spend so much time with them in a very loving and nurturing environment, it can really catch us off guard when this happens. But I think it's important to remember that when an animal is under stress or worse yet, they're feeling pain, their body goes on defense and they're trying to protect themselves. And a lot of times our well-intended behavior, for example, if a pet jumps off a couch and possibly breaks a leg, we may try to look at and examine that leg. But if we cause pain to our pet by moving it in the wrong way, they could perceive that as a threat and try to either snap or bite at us. So one of the best things I recommend is actually when something first happens, stay nice and calm and actually give the pet a few minutes to calm down and don't try to draw attention to the area that may be injured. 
Great, great, great advice. You know, one of the things I'm always, um, I'm always concerned about is weather related emergencies like heat stroke and frostbite because they come upon us so quickly. The weather changes so quickly. So how should we deal with them? Weather related emergencies can be a very big deal. And what I find makes the biggest difference is when the weather changes in an unexpected nature and we weren't prepared for it and we try to move forward or push forward with plans. When I lived up in New Jersey, the great example I gave, I always feared a day in May or June when the weather would really, really get hot, you know, up to 80 or 90 degrees for the first time, and everybody would want to be outside. And the fact of the matter is their pets were not ready for that. They were not heat tolerant yet. And so, you know, talking about summer and heat, we want to make certain that we transition pets back into that weather and prepare them for it. And the same can be said for cold weather as well. Uh, We just want to make certain that we're prepared. Uh, You know, if we're going to be spending a new day in the heat, maybe be prepared to have shade and alternate plan uh, water sources. And the biggest thing is just to watch our pets for subtle clues that they may not be handling that change in weather very well and being willing to change the plan in their best interest. It's interesting because you did mention the dog park. And, and of course, you know, being a dog owner, and when I lived in New York City, I went to the dog park on a regular basis. And sometimes dogs get into fights. So um, what should we do if our dog gets into a fight at the dog park? You know, that can be an incredibly scary situation. I love dog parks, and I've, I've seen that happen, unfortunately, all too often. And one of the biggest things is if that fight is actively taking place, uh, I know it's everybody's instinct to try to break it apart as fast as possible, uh, but I caution our listeners um, to be careful doing that. A lot of fights will die down very quickly, and the fight can actually be prolonged by doing things that are perceived as aggressive, like trying to kick dogs, push them away, etc. As soon as the dogs separate, try to get your dog out of the dog park completely. Um, because some dogs don't respond well to an injured animal. And then again, going back to what we said uh, about how a dog might behave, you want to actually give that dog a few minutes to calm down because their fight or flight mechanism is on overdrive. They were just in a fight, literally in a fight. Um, after that has happened, try to visually see what may be injured or hurt or bleeding. And if something is bleeding, ideally you want to have somebody kind of hold their head or hold their body while somebody else can place um, some gauze or cloth and apply firm pressure to that area to get the bleeding to stop. After that, the best advice, you want to seek veterinary care no matter what, even if it doesn't look like a bad injury. Bite wounds are always about 10 times worse under the surface than they look on top of the surface. Dr. Mark Sykes, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Excellent. Thank you, Ms. Charlotte. That was veterinarian Dr. Mark Sykes, assistant clinical professor at the College of Veterinary Medicine at Mississippi State University. To learn more about this topic, check out the Pet First Aid app by the American Red Cross. It's free and available for Android and Apple devices. You can find more information at avma.org. That's the American Veterinary Medical Association, avma.org, or the ASPCA.org. This was a great show. I hope you guys actually learned a lot. I want to give special thanks to Dr. Ann Hollenhouse, Dr. Ernie Ward, Dr. Tina Wismer, and Dr. Mark Seitz. 
And we must always thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet, making better skin, coat, and ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. If you have any questions, write us at Team at the Pet Buzz or on our social media channels. We'll address them on next week's show. And if you've missed any portion of the show, visit your favorite streaming channels or listen to the link podcast on our website or our social media channels on Monday morning. Most importantly, remember, we're here each week to help you take better care of your pets. Peace out and pet love. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pet Buzz. The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. Tune in each week for the latest 411 on everything pet related. Visit our website at www.thepetbuzz.com. Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.